another world, another time, in the age of wonder. You are listening to Trial by Stone. Trial by Stone! Dea, Tea, Dara, Tea. Your vital essence, the Dark Crystal. Kida, Kida. Come, come, see for yourself. Aru, Garu. How very interesting. Dea, Tea. I feel the song of Thra in my heart. Now go, you heroes of Thra. Hello and welcome to Trial by Stone. This is your Vital Essence for the Dark Crystal. I'm your host, Philip, and I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in. Um, as we, in this episode of Trial by Stone, we are speaking to the visual effects for the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. So I have Andy with me and as well as Wayne on the show. So I just want to say, Andy and Wayne, just thank you so much for being on the show. That's a pleasure. Nice yeah. to talk to you. Thank you for having us. And I guess, you know, for anyone who is like new to the show or, or you know, who wants to know, you know, I guess a bit of history with, you know, with, with DNEG and I, I just looked through your website and so I'll just do a, a, a recap of sort of what's on mentioned on your website. So DNEG TV was the sole VFX vendor on Dark Crystal Age of Resistance, delivering over 3,200 shots across almost two years. The work encompassed the build of around 50 character and creature assets for hero and DG double work, as well as a vast array of ENV gen work, ranging from castle interiors, villages, and cities through to forests, deserts, and caves. Across every one of their global sites, DNEG TV expanded and augmented the world of Thra, breathing new life, creatures, and magic into this already richly textured and beautiful puppets universe this must have been just a, a massive project for you guys at, at dneg especially i guess like sort of being the, like the sole vendor like with this show like what, what was it like to be part of the show yeah like i say it was uh, a pretty big undertaking for sure um like i'll just say i think you said 3200 shots and it was 4200 shots so uh, that extra thousand uh, is very important yeah we <laughs> thousand exactly yeah it was the last thousand um yeah purely because i mean that's that's a really important statistic because it is uh an absolutely huge show by any standard but certainly from a visual effects standpoint i i haven't got the official guinness book of records in front of me but i would not be surprised if that's one of the biggest visual effects shot counts on any tv show and uh, as you said to be the sole vendor on it for one facility to be able to deliver that many shots across that many ranges of disciplines and um, characters and environments. Uh, yeah, even I'm sort of still pinching myself slightly. It's, it's one of those things that you, you don't quite know when you're in the, the middle of it, how you're going to get to the end of it. Um, it was definitely one of the biggest things we've been involved in. Yeah. I think so it's a bit like climbing Mount Everest. If you, uh, if you try to just get straight to the top in one go, it would probably kill you. So he's... Rather than stand at the bottom looking at the top, you just kind of think, well, it's big, but if we break it down piece by piece, episode by episode, department by department, and you know, chip away at it and manage it sensibly, then you just kind of uh, take it one step at a time. And uh, two years later, we uh, we reached the summit. Yeah, which is, I mean, I will have to say, like the visual effects that you guys did on the show was pretty incredible, and there was there were always moments where that there was such a good blend between you know the the puppetry and as well as what you guys sort of contributed to the show so i think you, you guys did a brilliant job i guess you know I, I wanted to ask you just before we get into the visual effects i actually wanted to know um for yourself andy and wayne how did you discover the dark crystal well it was 2016 i believe i can't remember some like early to mid 2016 that uh netflix and henson's came to dean egg with the original idea, obviously they, they knew and they had it in development for a while that they were going to do a TV show, prequel spin-off series. They really came to Dean because I guess what they were trying to work out was how to kind of execute this. Uh, was it going to be like the original movie with uh, all full puppets and full sets or how to kind of embrace and use new technology and specifically CGI to, to help them realise that. So the, the, the question really was, what would be CGI and what wouldn't be. And the test, we, we actually were commissioned by Netflix to do a little five-minute, uh, roughly, uh, test film. The basis of that was to use CG to do the Gelfling characters, because obviously they are the small humanoid kind of hero characters, which 
in the original movie were probably the hardest for Jim Henson to puppeteer in a way that allowed a lot of movement and uh, dynamism. Yeah, because I know, like, I guess, like, with the original film that the Gelflings were sort of always, like, I mean, they're always the hardest to design. I think we've heard about that with interviews. So I guess, like, when they brought you on board, yeah, like, with doing this possible animation kind of show and, and this test, what was the decision that made it so, you know, to do, you know, to try and do a test with a, a puppet Skeksis versus Gelfling uh, CGI and not the other way around. I'm actually curious about like how, yeah, the CGI sort of Gelfling sort of came into place or was it just something that trying to, um, you know, ha- have that sort of fluidity uh, movement that was trying to be attempted, yeah? Certainly part of it because I guess, uh, you know, the Skeksis, uh, you know, they have very detailed faces, very characterful faces, they're naturally quite slow moving anyway. You know, they're not very dynamic characters in, in many ways. So sticking with the traditional way of puppeteering those obviously makes a lot of sense. Whereas the Gilflings are much more nimble, much more agile. And I think Louis Leterrier, the director, obviously has done, uh, you know, a lot of uh, more action led films. And I think he wants to inject that sense of, of action and, you know, modern filmmaking into the show which the restrictions of fully puppeteering the Gelflings, maybe there was a concern that uh, that would limit the action that they could do and the, the dynamism that they could inject. I think there's almost that, that tricky thing as well where you, you, I don't think anyone really knew whether the audience wanted full puppet as well. Mm. You know, there's for the, the hero characters that you follow through this massive story, um, it's hard to know whether sort of modern audiences, apart from the people who were fans of the original, are going to want to watch 10 episodes of, of heroes led by puppetry. Yeah. Um, so I think there was that probably concern that, that maybe it needed to be a sort of full CG for the audience to be able to connect to it. Yeah, because with CG you can obviously um, you know do pretty much anything you want to do. And with the, the facial expressions, we were able to uh, inject much more kind of emotion and expression physically into the faces of the CG Gelfling. Um, you know, it kind of opens up those possibilities as well. Um, but I guess, yeah, like Wayne's saying, the, the question of, you know, would, would audiences buy into and empathize and connect with puppet hero character puppets? Um, what was really interesting about the CG test was, you know, although by doing the test with the CG Gelfling, we were able to inject additional dynamism and uh, expression into the CG character. The big challenge was getting that to sit comfortably in a puppet world and act and interact alongside puppets. And in some ways, the kind of complexity and sophistication of the CG kind of worked against it because it, the end result did look really stunning and we were all very you know, pleased and proud with the work we did in, in uh, doing the CG Gelfling but even at DNEG we were still looking at it going, I, I kind of think puppets would be better. It yeah, was, it was one of those weird things where we, you know, we, we wanted the show to go ahead so badly. <clears throat> so many of us were fans of the original and, and it was just amazing the fact that there was going to be a chance to maybe work on a full show um, and uh, the animation team just loved the fact that there was the prospect of it being animated but I think even internally we, we sort of sat back and you, you instantly felt nostalgic and charmed when there was the Skeksis only on screen and you felt proud of the work you'd done when there was the CG Gelfling on screen but it, it just it it wasn't Henson's world you know it wasn't mm. the crystal that we were excited by yeah i think that was the end result wasn't it that uh you know henson's louis netflix um you know everyone kind of came to the conclusion that dark crystal is a puppet show and should be a puppet show and cg and visual effects can be used to tell that story and can be used to complement that story but you know it's it's not the driving force and the focal point of of the show and of the story so yeah i think it was a same decision that we all agreed with which kind of yeah. sounds like you're talking yourself out of work but actually it's yeah uh, it's not that at all it's about still trying to make a beautiful show yeah and i mean you i mean you certainly got a lot more work out of it anyways yeah. i mean yeah. i mean especially <laughs> i mean that that's the thing i guess like with that result it's sort of like it was sort of it, it sort of had to go either one way or the other whether you you know whether the show be completely cgi or sort of completely you know puppetry but just using sort of, yeah, you know, enhancing it, the CGI with, you know, with some aspects within the show. And, and I mean, that was sort of the interesting, you know, with um, the documentary, the crystal calls. And there was one moment, I think you guys did a, did a little test, try and do like a, a full face uh, sort of model of, uh, of Kira. 
Well, that was that was interesting. That uh, having obviously spent quite a lot of time on the CG Gelfling and the the little short film, uh, the five minute film that we did, and then realizing that that probably wasn't what Netflix and Henson's actually wanted. Um, you know, that wasn't kind of right. Well, the door's closed. Then there's no CG in this. We'll we'll just walk away. Um, there was then the idea that actually we can use CG to enhance the faces, augment the faces of real puppets, or you know to to yeah augment them in some way. So it was almost not so much an afterthought, but it was certainly a, a kind of smaller side project on the yeah. back of the main project where we took from the original movie of Kira. And we tried a couple of things. I think one was a full CG face replacement. So we took the CG thing that we'd uh, created for the test and did a, a full uh, face replacement of Kira. Uh, and then in parallel with that, we did the sort of 2D augmentation tests of adding little smiles, little eyebrow raises and blinks uh, to the original footage just to kind of show Netflix, you know, that you've got a full menu of options here. You can go full CG or you can go partial CG or you can go... 2D augmentation, and we did a digi-double test as well, I think, where we took a scene of uh, uh, Kira jumping down into the crystal chamber towards the end of the film uh, and just painted the puppet out of that shot in the original movie and replaced it with a digi-double with uh, more sophisticated wings and mm. kind of showed that to say that, you know, this this not a binary black and white thing. You can, you, you can cut your cloth accordingly based on the shots and the requirements mm. of the shots. And I think those sort of explorations really kind of opened up people's eyes to, yeah, it isn't a black and white thing. There are shades of grey in here, so let's actually talk about how DNEG can help complement this show. And I guess, like, from from those tests, like, I mean, with the pitch, but then sort of, you know, sort of transitioning over to sort of that, the augmentation, I guess, the aspect of that, you know, doing face replacements or or even digi-doubles. Because I know, like, especially, like, with, with the show... I guess probably one of the biggest examples um, with um, augmentation uh, in particular is probably with uh, with Deet. Originally, I think it was something to do with her eyes that originally that her eyes weren't able to, to blink at all. How did that sort of, you know, resolved about, with, you know, with your company to sort of, you know, I guess is one of the many examples to to make you know Deet blink and, and, and probably other with other Gelfling characters like throughout the shoot. Like what sort of... Um, little fixes that you sort of had to do like with with the Gelfling characters yeah it's the sort of thing that really kind of evolved over time I think with mm. Deet uh, and I think Mira as well was another character but Deet obviously is in the show a lot more um, in Deet's case as you say I think because her head was slightly smaller than other Gelflings and her eyes were bigger than other Gelflings so that meant there there just physically wasn't space inside the head for the puppeteer's hand and all the kind of animatronics and the the uh, motors and things to actually allow the the blinks and the facial expressions that Rianne and Brea uh, had in theirs. So yeah, at its very basic level, it was a case of well, you know, what can DNEG do to add either CG eyelids or some sort of blinking, um, and that kind of evolved in the, the tool set that uh, that we developed at DNEG. Um, we knew that Deep was going to be in hundreds, if not thousands, of shots in the movie, so we knew we couldn't go full CG with facial tracking and lighting and rendering. So it had to be a, a sort of simple, cost-effective solution. Um, and in the end, the tools that we developed were really interesting. That uh, it, was, it was compositing tools that we used. So it was, a, it was a nuke that we used to achieve the blinks and the facial expressions. But um, we were able to develop a series of controllers and sliders and a kind of user interface that was much more artist friendly so that we could then hand those tools over to Wayne's team and the animators so that it wasn't compositors driving the blinks and the facial expressions it was animators applying their skills and their knowledge to it yeah. but just using compositing tools to do it quickly and cost effectively so yeah which I, th I think was was a huge decision in the end um and it, it was it was tough to get the animators on board with it because it was it was compositing software and it was it was kind of verging into the 2D territory. Um, but once, I mean, James Moxon sort of came up with a lot of the, the program and the, the slider language and things. He, he sort of worked closely with us early on to try and make it comfortable for the animators. And he even set up like a bit of a tutorial that the animators could work through on the same shot just so that they could see if they felt comfortable with it. Um, and once everyone embraced that, then it just meant that you had you know, instead of compositors putting in the blinks and the, the little squints and smiles and things, then you had the animators timing. Um, 
and it actually became enjoyable for the animation team. Mm. They they really sort of loved doing it, working directly with the puppets and and sort of figuring out where that fine line was because mm. whenever you pushed it too far, it, it just got quite scary looking. Yeah, <laughs> and, really exercise yeah. wasn't it in in the style of the blink or how much to blink yeah. and the effect it had on the performance or the look of the character so there's quite a lot of exploration in the early stages with louis to yeah. try and work out the timings and it's always a less is more thing very yeah nice. and that was the interesting thing wasn't it that th things like the smiles um you know it was kind of less about smiling with the mouth and more about smiling with the eyes because if it was just the mouth it looked almost cartoonish <laughs> and a little bit creepy yeah. so even even the like like once once they put in we we put in kind of smile suppression at one point as well because Deep's puppet was quite smiling. Yeah, her, her her resting face was quite yeah. cheerful because she's a very she cheerful goes character. Through so many difficult things, and I think the, the the big standout one for me, which sort of probably goes by without being noticed that much has been done to it, is the or Mordra. Because um, her her puppet was, she was had quite a very thick smile, smiley as well, yeah. yeah. And again, she's the most sort of stern character throughout the whole thing, and, and very rarely smiles. And I think that's the interesting evolution of it. Is that I think at the very base level, we at the very beginning we talked about well, it's blinks. You know, we need to make this character blink and that character blink. And I think um, as as James and the team developed the tools and the animators started exploring, I think it surprised everyone just what could be done and how sympathetic it could look. And I think that's sort of evolved probably beyond what we originally expected it to yeah, become way beyond. to the point where we were taking background characters and giving them expression. And we, like Wayne said, we were suppressing smiles, we were adding smiles, we were doing library raises. Um, and with every new character and every new shot, there was always a thing of, oh, will, will the tools work if the head's at this angle or will it work if there's hair slightly over the eye or will it work in this lighting condition? And there were lots of challenges and, and it's, I guess it's the classic visual effects pipeline when used well is that anything is possible as long as it's talked about and planned and thought through and you've got the best people doing it. You know, it's amazing what challenges you can overcome and it really was a collaborative process. Yeah, because I, like, I mean, for example, like with the eye blinking, I mean, because on set with when they have all the puppets there and like, was there any sort of like reference, you know, you know how I think from my understanding, like in, in post-production, you know, you have like uh, dots or you put pluses on, you know, characters and stuff that you, that you can track it in post-production. Was that something that happened, you know, with the show or, or was it something that you sort of had to do, do it manually or try and find another way to, to make those things work? Yeah. It's one of those things where if, if, if we were to have uh, put markers on the faces or that kind of thing, then that's going to slow down production time. It's slow down the, uh, the shoot time and it's going to increase the amount of uh, cleanup time for the, uh, the uh, prep artist to paint out the markers and things and also it kind of me it kind of locks you into planning in advance which shots are going to be visual effects shots and which won't actors are going to be old and which won't and actually it was more of an evolution across the show as louis was editing and uh, starting to kind of uh, develop the episodes that it's only when you see it in context that you kind of think, actually, the emotion of this scene is kind of weird that that girlfriend looks a little bit happy. Mm -hmm. Or in this one, it would be just magic if she just did a slight downturn of the mouth and a little bit of tear in the corner of the eye. Yeah. So much retrospective thing. But I guess because we had digi doubles of all of the hero characters, uh, the tracking team were able to use those, uh, those meshes of those heads and body track the puppets without the need for the tracking markers. Um, and then for background characters or smaller characters, we had to create um, bespoke head meshes for those characters. But by having the meshes uh, and the, the detail on the faces, they were able to get uh, really solid tracks mm. without the need for any of that. So it sort of yeah. gave more flexibility to Louis to be able to just shoot without worrying. And then uh, we could sort of uh, solve it on a case by case basis as needed. Try and think like of examples of um, digi doubles. I, I think probably one of my favorite shots was when um i think it was in episode two or three but it was it was pretty much a shot where brie is in the library like you know she's in the library and she's running up the stairs there, there's there, yeah there was a shot where it's like because it was wide that you know it was a digi double of of bria but it just felt it just had such a great blend of you know with visual effects but also you know the puppetry um aspect to it was that was that something that was sort of challenging i guess you know trying to especially with digi doubles trying to you know give it that that puppety like with the movements definitely one yeah. of the biggest challenges <laughs> i think wayne can put great lens yeah. the uh, challenges of that no it, it was it was it was one of the the most difficult 
sort of parts of a project that I've I've come up against really and and from the from the very beginning it was something that we went through so many iterations of trying to figure out um sort of how they move um I think the main thing because you, you we had so much test footage of the upper halves of the bodies with how the, the puppeteers were working them and then we were trying to figure out what their legs would be doing just just to come up with like a simple walk cycle and a run cycle became very difficult just because of the the sort of rhythm that they were walking. Um, there was a couple of times we went down to set to sort of work with the puppeteers to try and sort of figure out. And that, that was when they were starting to come up with sort of Jim Henson's mode of sort of doing walks where they would just let their bodies walk and sort of not put any extra in their hand. As soon as they started doing that, it meant that we could approach the legs a lot more naturally. So I think it was difficult for the puppeteers as well, wasn't it? Because actually yeah, a lot of them had come from various backgrounds of, of how yeah, they like, would puppeteers. When you see the way Kermit the Frog or the Muppets move, and I think a lot of that, like Wayne said, is driven by the arm and the shoulder of the puppeteer. So you, you basically <laughs> bob your arm up and down to make the puppet look like it's walking. Mm. And Henson on the original movie, I think, never was happy with that for the Gelflings because he wanted them to feel that much more mm. kind of human and real. So that's where, yeah, he developed the thing of uh, using his natural body rhythm and his own walking to drive the up and down movement of the puppets, and it gives a much more naturalistic feel. And that back and forth with the puppeteers and the animators, I think, was quite key, wasn't it? That yeah. In massive. the early days, we were matching to the bobbing of the arms, which created a more comical kind of run, I guess, and a yeah, cartoon was, sort of feel. It was just, it was weird as well. Like the more, There was a fine line where the more you tried to sort of study the puppetry and, and make you know, if you had a full digi shot, the more you tried to make that look puppeteered and try and strip back some of the stuff you'd normally do as an animator, sometimes it just it just strayed into very bad animation. And you something about it, you knew it was animated, but you you knew that it well, didn't look right. Because the, the big flaw with the well, not big flaw with the original movie, I'm going to get uh, killed by all the fans. <laughs> in the original movie it was perfect in every way um, but I think everyone will, will probably admit that whenever you cut to a wide shot in the original film and saw a gelfling running up a hillside uh, you know it's very clearly uh, you know a small uh, child or an actor in a suit doing the running so it, it very the movement suddenly felt very natural and very human and it was quite jarring when you cut between that and a puppet and you know in some ways we had exactly the same problem but if you yeah. cut from puppet to digi double and we use motion capture or had brilliant animation, then you'd effectively have exactly the same problem. Yeah, so, I, I think we ended up sort of like initially we started with our, our passive animation being very stripped back and basic, and then we'd start what we needed to add to make it better. But then it, it would always feel like bad animation. So a lot of the time we we sort of freed up the animators to, to just go all out as they would in a sort of fully animated show, and then start figure out the things that we needed to take away so that it didn't feel too human and too perfect. And that, that was um, the, the biggest challenge, wasn't it, was you could either go too perfect and, and get the best animators to do the best animation, and yeah. it would just be too good. But at the same time, if you went too puppety, then, as we mentioned, it just feels like bad animation, which viewed in isolation became very hard to review because yeah. you couldn't quite tell, is, is that good or bad? Yeah. Or yeah. So, so it's just more like just you know pushing it forward, but then sort of taking a couple of steps back. It's just it's really studying the puppeteers, isn't it? Studying. Yeah, you know the stuff to take out, otherwise yeah. you'd be square one again. So you start to build up a bit of language, you know, where the the puppeteers won't have any control over sort of individually the shoulders of the puppet. Whereas if you sort of do some some motion capture or you start animating, you put a lot of weight into your shoulders, so you take some of that stuff out and some of the hip twisting and things like that. Um, in a really good relationship with, uh, with Louis and Kevin Clash, the, uh, the puppet captain as well, who mm -hmm. came into D-Neg. Uh, I think they were only going to come in for an hour or two and then they spent most of the morning uh, in the apartment, which was fantastic because, you know, I mean, the really interesting <coughs> thing about the show is that for us, we were just like kids in a sweet shop when we were out on sets and looking at the puppets and you, you even had a go with uh, Rianne, didn't you? Yeah. And, uh, so, yeah. yeah. Heavy, for, heavy. for us, yeah, the kind of CG and visual effects is kind of boring day job stuff, yeah. whereas puppets is... And I think for, for Kevin and Louis coming into DNEG and looking at what the animators were doing, it was almost role reversal, wasn't it, where yeah. Kev, Kevin was just loving, just watching what the animators were doing and feeding back to them about how he puppeteers and what sort yeah. of uh, weight shifts and, uh, and pivots he uses. And, you know, that real kind of two-way feedback was really yeah. inspiring to the animators as well.
And I, I think as well, like it, it, it was about building up a relationship with Louis and, and things that he, the way that he wanted to direct things. And I think there was a lot of things on set that due to time constraints and, and the sort of epicness of some of the sequences and scenes, there was ways that he'd wished that, that he'd been able to direct the puppeteering, but it just wasn't possible. Mm. So obviously with us, where he could push things a little further, then, then there was times when, when he naturally wanted to push things further than, than you would have might maybe been able to get with puppeteering. So mm. um, that would obviously stray things more towards the animated route, but, and then it would be finding how to make that feel like it honored the puppeteering as well. And so I guess, you know, like with other examples of CGI, I'm actually curious if there was ever a case where you had to sort of, you know, animate like little fix ups. Like, um, I mean, like, for example, like with the mouth flaps, for example, I'm, there was just something I was always curious whether there was any like, you know, scenes or moments where sort of had to get involved, like, you know, with say if like the mouth flap of the character was sort of like out of sync, like on set that you were sort of brought to, to you guys to, you know, whether they tried to sort of fix that kind of stuff um, with the show? There was definitely a few, and I think um, it was probably more fixes than than kind of creative. But I think um, what the interesting thing that I didn't realise until working on this show, and that uh, maybe a lot of people don't, is that uh, for characters like Augra and Skeksis, particularly, you know, two or three different styles of puppets. So. Um, for close-up shots where it's kind of head and body and, and you're seeing a lot of dialogue and performance, that's uh, a more traditional puppet where the puppeteer has their hand up uh, operating the mouth and uh, all of that kind of thing. But for wider shots where you need to see the Skeksis uh, walking around or Augur walking around, that's an actual full body suit. Um, and for some of those characters, I think for Augur and for a few of the Skeksis, those bodysuits didn't allow for mouth movement because they, they couldn't, the puppeteer couldn't operate the bodysuits and the arms and also the, the heads. So in wide shots, occasionally there would be a wide shot that had dialogue in it. And, you know, sometimes you don't notice because the mouth movement lost in the mix somewhere. But there were definitely some shots, I think, of Augur walking into the crystal chamber where she was delivering quite a key bit of mm. audio. Um, I think there's a shot of her in the... Yes, I think it's in uh, yeah in episode three when uh, no sorry not the dream space it's when she's talking to her young young self in the crystal, mm. um, and I think when she's sitting by the orrery as well when she's looking through all the books in the orrery that's the the actor in the bodysuit and the mouth is open by default, <laughs> so even though in that scene she's not talking it kind of looked a bit strange that she was just sitting there with her mouth wide open so. There was definitely occasions where we either had to in two D just kind of warp males to kind of close them or just sink a little bit more to the dialogue. But I think I think they wanted to kind of keep that to a minimum because again, that's the sort of thing where you're fixing things uh, in post, which often can be kind of mm. detrimental to you know time and schedule, and it's it's better to kind of channel your energies to uh, to where it's more yeah. more needed so and obviously at the time when we were working on the shots was was when we just had the the, the puppeteers dialogue mm. um and obviously there was then the whole stage afterwards of, of recording the the voice actors that would be kind of recording their dialogue to the movement that was sort of pre-flapped so to speak <laughs> yes <laughs> they probably had a, a, a trickier time of trying to trying to sync things back up and fixing some of the syncing issues. Mm. But I think it's one of those things, isn't it, where I think people are more forgiving of puppets because, you know, the lip sync thing is an important thing, isn't it, that I think on the CG test, uh, I can't remember if she, she did speak in the CG test, didn't she? It's, it's so long ago, I can't remember now. But uh, obviously if it's a CG gelfling, you can get much more uh, sophisticated mouth shapes, whereas the gelfling is very much mouth open, mouth shut. Um, and I think that's the, there is a, a forgiveness to it because yeah, because we, we had some facial capture stuff for the test that we were putting onto our Gelfling CG model, um, and it was sort of working but kind of not, and it wasn't quite picking up all of the things that were being said. Mm. And as soon as you had, and at first we were like, oh, well, that's that's kind of fine because it's supposed to be homage to a puppet show sort of thing. But because you were looking at CG and, and part of you knew you were looking at CG, there was like zero forgiveness in your head for for the lip sync not being right, it just yeah. felt jarring. Whereas with the puppet, within about two seconds, you're, you're in and you, mm. you kind of don't care. And I think that's, that's the really interesting thing about what the show has demonstrated, I guess, isn't it? And it's probably not even that surprising because <coughs> it taps into everyone's childhood around the world is that, you know, if you give, uh, give someone a, a sock and stick a couple of ping pong balls on it and then, you know, waggle your hand around, 
you're suddenly breathing life into a character and kids will just watch it and be amazed and they'll talk to it. Um, and it's the least sophisticated thing you can think of. And, and yet the sophistication of CGI <coughs> and visual effects suddenly makes everyone yeah, demand and expect something perfect. Yeah. So that probably wasn't the big challenge, wasn't it, really, was how can we use sophisticated technology and deliver something that feels more handcrafted and simple and, mm. and that has that tangible kind of beautiful feel that the puppets did, um, yeah, whether it's the animation or the texturing or the lighting or the sets. I think the whole thing needed to feel as charming and as beautiful. and Yeah, um, and that's the thing. It wasn't just about making it like almost giving yourself the excuse that it doesn't have to be perfect, you know, it, it's almost like you, you're sort of putting less effort in, but it was actually almost actually double more, the effort, more effort exactly, to yeah. try and find a way to de-perfect. Well, so computers do perfect really, really well, yeah. and actually half the people, whether it's on this show or any other show, is making it not yeah. look perfect. So, yeah, the first 80% of any job is like, well, that was quick, and then oh, 20% <laughs> is taking forever. Yeah. So, yeah, that was a challenge. Yeah, it was just, I don't know, it was just one of those things where I'll, I'll, I was actually, yeah, just curious if that, that was the case, you know, with the mouth flaps. And now, now because because there's such a great blend, and in particular, I mean, the, probably the one that really um, stood out to me was, um, I guess, like with the tongues of the Skeksis. Because I know, like in the original film, you know, they're just really flat. So I kind of like that you sort of, you know, added a bit of, you know, life, I guess, you know, uh, just, uh, just as another example of just one of the many, you know, augmentations here. I think a lot of that as well came from the, from the test show that we did, because even in the test film, even though it was a, a real Skeksis, um, we, we did add CG tongs to the scientist in that in a handful of shots. It wasn't that mm. many. But, yeah, I think we, what we saw from that was that uh, on key beats and key emotions and key bits of dialogue, it really just elevated the performance uh, in a simple way that you didn't necessarily pick up on. And, I think there was one shot right at the end of the show that everyone, uh, sorry, not the show, the, the test film that uh, that everyone loved, where the scientist is looking up at the camera and he's screaming and his tongue's kind of waggling and flapping side to side. And the animator, it was Alex, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Who animated it. And he just did this little beat at the end where the scientist closed its mouth and just a little bit of the CG tongue was just poking out of the, co uh, the side of the mouth. Yeah. And it was a subtle little thing, but it just... Again, because it wasn't perfect, you could believe that if that was a rubber tongue flapping around, you might just catch it where he didn't yeah. quite flap it back into the mouth when he closed it. And it, just, it was a really beautiful little yeah. moment. And I think it was that probably one of those key moments that sort of sold the idea that, that CG tongs could work as well. Mm. And so I guess, you know, with this show, you know, that it had over 4,200 visual effects shots, um, which is definitely incredibly incredible amount for a puppet show. So... And, and I know usually, I know like, you know, with feature films, for example, that you'd have the one house and then there'd be all these other, you know, smaller companies, are, you know, they'll do shots for certain scenes and, and all that kind of stuff. So I was actually curious, like, I mean, what was it like sort of being like the sole vendor, like of, you know, of the entire show? And, and was it something that sort of made the process much better, like sort of having the pipeline of sort of all the visual effects shots from start to finish, like in-house? Yeah, I mean, I guess it's probably one of the biggest rewards and one of the biggest challenges. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, all the way through the show, I guess one of the hardest things was just sheer logistics um, because that volume, you know, there's only a certain scale and uh, an ability of a company to be able to manage that just even at a basic data processing level or, you know, storage capacity and render farm. You know, there's, uh, there's only so many places that could do that. So it was absolutely a challenge, but I guess um, that's kind of the thread through the whole show is that it's quite unusual for a TV show, especially a 10 episode TV show to have a single director, you know, a single, uh, you know, shoot team and production crew. And, you know, it's cause it's 10 hours worth of TV. So it's almost uh, three or four films back to back. So it's, it's a pretty substantial undertaking by any stretch, but by having Louis as the kind of the director show throughout, there was obviously that single vision. He was shooting everything. He was editing everything. He had the sort of, the master view for how these characters would evolve and how the episodes link to each other and the, the sort of mm. DNA running through it all. So I guess by having it all through DNEG, that meant that we had the same principle. So all the digi-doubles would be consistent. The animation style was unique and consistent. All the environments connected together. So it just gave Louis one voice and one point of contact as well. So I guess certainly from the flow of the creative and the flow of the ideas and the briefing and the feedback, 
that certainly would have made his life easier and it made our life easier mm. than to manage everything in-house. Um, but certainly, yeah, having to wrangle 4,200 shots and the crew of uh, many, many hundreds, uh, I can't remember now how many people worked on it, but we, we literally had, by the end, we had every single one of Dineg's uh, sites working on the show. So we had literally from LA, Vancouver, Montreal, London, Mumbai, Chennai, yeah. all around the world. So yeah, my inbox never stopped because it was yeah. uh, 24-7. So many different time zones. Exactly, yeah. And I think that's, that was the thing that was also, you know, you often, whenever you have to sort of decide on which sections go to another company um, or some decisions made for you, then, you know, you're, it's, it's that blessing and curse. You, you don't want to lose any of the work because often you would have been attached to multiple sequences and you, you, you don't want to lose that work. And at the same time, there's that sort of sigh of relief that it's like, okay, well, now we can at least focus on this and we don't have to worry about that. But obviously with the working all through DNEG, you know, there'd be, you'd decide on sequences to go out to Mumbai and Chennai um, or to Vancouver and and then it's you're still as involved in it you know mm. I guess that was sort of the advantage of you know the, the different time zones is sort of you know no matter what time it was there was still work being done on on the show essentially yeah and it was nice that you could keep like like for me anyway to, to be able to keep involvement with the different teams that were working on it because it wasn't just going to another company it was just going to another site the same company so you'd come in in the morning and, and you'd get to review the stuff that, that Mumbai and Chennai had done through the night and and it was it was just great to keep involvement in the whole show and to keep um, and I think it's such a passion project from virtually everyone involved I mean we really felt that on set as well but you know everyone in the creature shop and all the guys shooting and the, the guys building the sets everyone just wanted to work on the show yeah. and was excited by the show and we, we had that difference. Yeah, yeah just you know talking to the uh, the guys in <laughs> India, the animators and the uh, you know the lighting artists and all the crew out there, you know everyone. It's such a different show and such a unique show, and it's got such a history and legacy that everyone was just thrilled to be part of it, in spite of the fact yeah, that I mean, it was very, very, very hard work. You know, yeah. it's uh, it was a thrilling thing to be part of. So I think by by owning it, by saying that Dineg did that, and you know, so people say, so you worked on Dark Crystal, which bit did you do? And you say, well, kind of all of it. Really. Yeah. Yes, uh, you know. And, and at every single level, you know, just there might have been some an artist who had textured like several castles in the past, but now they were texturing the crystal castle. You know, mm. it makes such a huge difference to everyone who was working on this show, especially yeah. the people who were fans of it. That mm. it was even the, the smallest of tasks was made more exciting by mm. being a part of this. That's it. I think yeah, just dailies was always a pleasure, wasn't it? Because you're just reviewing yeah. really interesting, beautiful stuff. And I think you know, I, I watched it uh, with my family when it uh, when it aired at the end of mm. August. And usually when you work on a show, especially when you've worked on it for two years, yeah. you come to the end and you think, all oh, right, I don't want to see that ever again because I'm just <laughs> exhausted by those pixels. Yeah, because yeah, um, you had those memories about, oh, man, you know, how much exactly, intensive yeah. work some some moments were, you know, <laughs> yeah, exactly. getting the yeah, shots. It's yeah. very hard to remove some of the associations from the final product. And, uh, and you know, there were a lot of hard times. And there, were, there were some late nights and some headaches along the way, inevitably. Yeah. But uh, but sat down with my family and watched it and watched it as a viewer and even I was looking at it going wow this is beautiful yeah. this is and stunning I, and I'm still excited to watch it like, mm. I didn't just sit down because I thought oh I, I suppose I should I put a lot of time into you know it was there was genuine excitement mm. to to and I've, I've never felt so excited to see something that I've worked on yeah and it and yet it was it I've never worked on anything that was such a difficult challenge and such a strain mentally and physically yeah. that because I say the the multiple time zones thing can't be underestimated. I mean, Wayne was a nation supervisor for pretty much all sites, and you know you could literally spend a day, couldn't you, where you're briefing your London team, mm. then having to jump on a call with Chennai because you know they, you know their day ends at midday for London, and then by four o'clock Montreal are logging in and you're speaking to them, and then mm. five o'clock Vancouver are coming online and you're juggling <laughs> conversations with Vancouver and LA at the same time, yeah. and then, uh, and then come six o'clock thinking right what. Well, should do my work now. Yeah, uh, shots to do myself. Exactly. It's like that day went quick. So yeah, it, it's, it, it is exhausting having that sort of global mentality. But at the same time, a it just had to be that way because, like I say, you know, you mentioned yourself. There's no way that you'd be able to get it done if it was just one site in one time zone. Mm. Um, it's brilliant to see the excitement globally. You know, it's uh, yeah, really, really rewarding. You know, we were doing all the visual effects for the show. Like, what was sort of one the or some of the many scenes that were sort of like the most sort of intensive work that you guys sort of had to produce um, with the Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. 
I think for me personally, because as DFX supervisor, I'm sort of uh, all disciplines and all departments, um, but never actually having to do any of the work. I just get to sit in the screening room <laughs> and criticize it. Um, but probably the biggest challenge and the thing I found the most scary going into it was the uh, the carriage chase sequence where Rian uh, gets rescued from the Chamberlain in episode five. Uh, purely because uh, in terms of execution, I mean, trying to do a 40 mile an hour, sort of effectively a car chase with a huge crash at the end of it in a forest uh, when working with puppets on a small sound stage, you know, on paper that just shouldn't be possible. And I guess it's testament to Louis for a start that Louis had the vision that he could shoot that and he could make that happen uh, and testament to the, the guys at Deneg and the crew for helping him to realize it because you know, that was obviously an epic green screen shoot on the soundstage of the carriage chassis and the puppets. A lot of puppeteers involved in that. I mean, there's some, uh, some behind the scenes stuff in the documentary of uh, just how much green there was in, uh, in some of those shots. Yeah, I remember saying, yeah, watching that documentary and yeah, just saying, you know, being, yeah, not only being the green screen stage, but yeah, puppeteers in their green suits, that you sort of had to comp over them as well. That Exactly. So, yeah, even you know, when you remove the puppeteer from the shot, you're not just then revealing the carriage that's behind that puppeteer. You're just revealing a hole where the carriage should be. So not only are you removing the puppeteers and the rods and the wires, you're then replacing the background that should be behind them. And they shot that sequence on the sound stage. Uh, they had Louis operating the main steady cam. They had uh, a second steady cam operator and the DOP operating a third camera on a track. Um, so you basically had two steady cams that obviously are just going absolutely nuts to keep the sequence energetic and frenetic. And then, you know, you've got a camera operator appearing in the background of one of the other camera operator's shots and you've got the track everywhere. And so it's just, you know, you know, carnage of a shoot, but, um, but you needed that energy and that dynamism to make it work. And then we shot plates for that sequence in a place called Puzzlewood, which is uh, sort of South Wales, England border. Um, and really, really interesting kind of forest. Um, but we shot the plates for that many weeks after the main shoot, and so then to work out how those plates need to be shot, what angles, what lighting, to then marry them back together again. So yeah, that sequence. I mean, it was about four minutes long. I think about eighty shots in itself. So it's almost like a show in its own right, um, and a combination of incredible compositing, incredible animation, incredible uh, roto and you know the the team that did all the roto prep on that stuff were just incredible so yeah testament i've got to do a shout out to james hatsmith who was the yeah. uh, the 2d uh, supervisor on that sequence who had had a vision at dneg that he could definitely make it work and he was thrilled at the chance to make it work when uh, when i was sitting in a corner rocking backwards and forwards and uh, yeah he completely embraced that didn't he mm. and it was one of those sequences that you just couldn't quite see how it was going to come together until it came together so it needed the people that could see past the the chaos, you know. Yeah, for you it was probably uh, ascendancy, was it, from an animation point of view? I think it's it's got to be thinking back about it. There, there were, I mean, there was lots of different challenges throughout, but I think the ascendancy was was quite a huge one. I, I think it just didn't quite. The, the design process took a lot longer than intended in terms of figuring out just even on paper in concept stage how to make it. Clearly, faces, is it going to be one face, three faces, five faces? Um, are they always going to be the same or are they going to interchange? And, and so there was a lot of back and forth and questioning before we even got to the build stage. Um, and then it was there was things that you couldn't even foresee being tricky when it was on paper. But then when you were in the scene with sort of, well, I mean, sometimes up to 150 spiders all in one place, in one scene, each one's kind of, an eyebrow of one face, but a chin of another, and how do you make those, you know, we, we had to keep changing the designs as we went, just to... And all the while still making it feel tangibly like it could have been puppeteered and it sits happily yeah, in this puppet had, world. So. It had a lot of boxes to tick, because mm. you had the, the silk spitters themselves, which are supposed to come across as these, you know, we've seen them in the show already, so you knew how big they were. And um, so you wanted to try and keep some sort of weight, but then you also had to tick the box of the clear lip sync, which in some cases the mouth had to move fast. And uh, you also needed from, you know, to work very closely with lighting and comp because a lot of the time the animators couldn't quite see how clear their faces were until they'd been rendered and lit in the dark environment. 
Um, Because a lot of the time it was the highlights that gave form to the faces and things like that. So it wasn't just something that the animator could just stick his headphones on and get buried into it and and just get it done. It involved sort of constant collaboration and and constant reworking. You know, there'd be sort of two two weeks of getting it to a certain stage only to realize that we need to disassemble it and try and rebuild it in a different way. I think that's what's great about uh, working at DNA TV is that although, you know, it's a huge company and this was a big show and there was, you know, a huge amount on it. When you actually break it down, as I mentioned at the very start, you know, breaking it down to these bite-sized pieces, and you've got smaller sub-teams working on these sequences. And I think uh, one of the strengths of the TV department is that that collaboration of having the lighting artists and the and the comp lead and the animators all in a room together talking to each other. You know, it's it's not the, the visual effects pipeline of right, I've done my job, pass that on, someone else can pick it up yeah. and do their thing with it, and then they pass it on. It was very much how can I animate this and can you light it for me and just give me some feedback on how that looks and actually we need the comp guys to get involved so they can do the volumetric lighting to see how that then can uh, bring out some of the face yeah. shapes and just that that dynamic kind of workflow I think was probably one of the main ways that we were able to get it done in the time that we did wasn't it yeah. because uh, yeah if it was too delineated it just wouldn't have worked yeah and I, and I think they, they work beautifully like when I was able to sit and watch them as, as an audience member it was kind of one of the bits I was holding my breath for the most and sort of prepared to cringe but I, I considering everything that we went through to sort of get them to that stage and you know they they work the way they do because of the lighting because of the comp because of the animation because of the collaboration between us and louis and and the sort of endless sort of cycle of feedback and um you know it's one of those sequences that we could have it's the same with any of it you you kind of wish you kept going further and i think with the ascendancy we, we could have we could have endlessly evolved that you know mm-hmm. so much detail it's, um, uh, it's there, knowing when yeah. to, where to draw the line and when to say stop. And I think uh, I think I think the stopping point was ended up. It's a really powerful character, isn't it? There's yeah. so much detail and complexity in there, and it's it's. I think it achieved what it needed to achieve, which is great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. With the 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 you know the spider army, I guess essentially with the ascendancy, um, and I guess probably one of the most sort of interesting sort of characters on on the show is uh, is Law, and um, and I, I think. I actually like to hear just a story, I guess, the story behind Law, because it, it, I actually found it really interesting that, you know, from the documentary, the Crystal Calls, they mentioned that, that originally Law was going to be sort of a completely CGI character. And so just wanted to know sort of the evolution of how it started with him, with Law being, you know, going from through CGI to then sort of becoming uh, the puppet, but then you using the band Rak- Raku um, sort of performance you know, to then remove the puppeteers and shots and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, that's uh, I mean, we could probably do a whole hour-long interview <laughs> yeah, just on yeah. law because <laughs> yeah, <tune in>. <laughs> exactly. Because um, yeah, I guess I mean he's kind of almost symbolic of the whole dark crystal process, really. That whole collaborative nature of it, it kind of mm. symbolizes it a lot because, uh, as you say, he was originally going to be a full CG character, and I think that decision was made just based on the complexity of the character and the sort of things that the script required him to do. Again, lots of action, quite a few dynamic sequences. And, you know, I guess coming to it cold, people looking at it going, well, that's just going to be either impossible to puppeteer or massively cost prohibitive to puppeteer. So that's where you use visual effects. It makes sense. Um, so, yeah, we, we were involved quite early on weren't we, in terms of taking the Brian Froud sketches and the designs that he created and starting to kind of build rough concept models and playing around with volume and proportion and sort of, um, you know, jointing and just trying to kind of uh, take the 2D into 3D and doing little animation tests and movement cycles, exploring the character. Um, and because we didn't have the reference at that point, it was just a case of, well, how would our animators puppeteer this character? How should he move? How should he walk? Mm. Lots of discussions with Louis about his his movement style. And uh, and I guess the more we did that, the more we started to develop the character. It was almost like we were kind of creating prototypes, weren't we, that, mm. um, you know, a really fantastic three-dimensional prototype that the puppeteers could see and the creature shop could see. And that then, I guess, got them more excited about the possibilities of creating a, a practical law. Because um, I think I think they'd always planned on building some puppet elements for close-up shots, cutaways, or over-the-shoulder kind of things, interactions. <clears throat> so there was always an intention that it would be a combination of the two, but, um, but I don't think anyone quite realized that they would actually be able to build a full puppet law. 
Mm. And I think that was in part because of the test that we did and the kind of, again, the collaboration back and forth with sending them our, our CG models that they could do uh, 3D prints of. The Creature Shop guys could then start thinking about this kind of puppeteering style. Uh, and I guess, again, the, the ability for DNEG to be able to paint out puppeteers uh, afterwards. So mm. that really kind of liberates them to be able to create more yeah. complex puppets that they wouldn't have been able to do uh, you know, in 1982. So, yeah. And that fed back again, because obviously, we, to a certain extent, any of the full body lore stuff um, was always in our territory. So we'd been coming up with different ways that he would stagger about and stumble and ways that he'd form and things like that. But then once they had built and started practicing and become confident with the with the puppet and made the decision to use more of the puppet for the full body uh, shots, then that obviously had to feed directly back into what we were doing because then a lot of our animation tests felt out of place if they were in the same sequence with the puppet lore. So, so it was just that constant cycle of mm. uh, of each each discipline trying to figure out how to complement the other. Yeah, it was getting they were they were inspired by us, and then we saw what they were doing. And, <coughs> excuse me, we were inspired by them, and yeah, and, and in the end, I think it probably resulted in far more puppet lore than yeah than any of us yeah. could have expected. But and it's great. As well. like yeah, the, the I mean, on that. Is, I think that's the thing. Amazing. I think again, at the risk of talking us out of work, and that's the yeah. really bizarre thing about what we do is is half the time you're in uh, client meetings and conversations where you're almost persuading people to not use CG because well, that, yeah. we all believe that you know the more you can camera the better. It was yeah on any other show you know if you if you suddenly get told you know you're gearing up to do a sequence and then you get told you're not doing that sequence anymore it's usually quite disheartening but on this happened so many times where you, you'd already have conversations and you'd be planning and deciding who to cast that work to mm. um, and then you'd suddenly get a quick time through and, and it would be a, a they'd recorded the sequence using the puppet and they'd absolutely smashed it. Mm. And and in this case, you know, we'd just watch it with our jaws open and it's, it was just complete respect, you know, yeah. for the, the, every time they managed to achieve something that they didn't think they were even going to attempt and then they managed to do it to that level, it just yeah. completely stunned us. I think us. that is because we were so, you know, it's a passion project and we were so inspired by the puppets and what those guys could do that, in a way, you, you're happy to be the supporting actor. You know, mm. you, we didn't want to be front and center. We didn't want to be the ones going, "Look at our cool CG." You know, we we wanted people to see the puppets, see the set, see this world, and for us to be kind of happily supporting in the background and complementing it. And I think that's what's great about lore as well is that I'm sure the average uh, viewer and probably actually even myself when I came to watch it <laughs> would look at some shots and think. Is, is that puppet or is that CG? It can't be puppet because there's no way you could get a puppet to do that. But then you look and realize, no, it is a puppet. They did manage to get it to do that. And that means when it does switch to CG, it helps the blends to be that little bit more seamless because, because you just can't tell because the puppeteering is so sophisticated and the visual effects is so sophisticated. It just helps us to kind of make that blend more seamless, which is great. Yeah. And I mean, like even for myself, like even when I'm watching some of the episodes and even sometimes like I can't tell, you know, you know, what's CGI and what's, um, you know, what's puppet and just, but, you know, just knowing that the blend that you guys did with the CGI, you know, with the whole sort of, yeah, puppetry just sort of, I, I think just, just really worked and really benefited the show. I mean, especially, you know, with this, with the show that it was really expanding the world of Thra, um, so much more than the original film, you know, going through lots of different environments, um, so I guess, you know, like what, what was sort of like one of the sort of challenging like sort of environments that you that you had to work on, like with the visual effects with the show? I mean, there were, I guess the, the biggest challenge was that there were so many different kinds of environments. That's, you know, that's one of the great things about Thrar is that, you know, when we looked at it, you've got deserts, forests, snowy mountains, caves villages you know it's pretty much if you just did a, a who's who of what sort of environments could there be we pretty much ticked all the boxes so it's not like you could just say well as long as we can nail trees then we're we're in a good place or we're brilliant snowy mountains so <laughs> we've got this one so it's kind of like no we need to do everything yeah, so and yeah and yeah huge amounts because yeah that that is the thing isn't it that uh, we really were expanding the world so you know even though there was a big studio space and the set builds were enormous and there were so many of them it was like 20 20 something individual builds of of different scales um you know even then you're still limited by studio height and the footprint so you know we clearly had to do a lot of expansion and augmentation in that regard um, but I guess things like the Caves of Grot, which were almost entirely fully CG, particularly for when Deet's flying through them, 
and you know you got waterfalls and rivers and villages and stuff like that in there. That's and you know the the concept art that we got from the production designers was you know very kind of. Uh, almost stylized, you know, very kind of uh, bespoke. So we're obviously having to be true to the style and true to the the art design of the show, um, but really with nothing more to go off than the concept art. So uh, that was that was kind of a blank canvas that we just kind of you know where do you start building an entire cave network? So that was mm-hmm. quite a challenge. But the endless forest was was a biggie as well because trees and leaves and uh, again just the the unique visual style i mean the forest in the original movie is quite an iconic thing because it's so much of it is alive you know the plants are almost like animals and the animals look like plants and mm-hmm. everything's moving and there's so much detail and texture and when when you go out on set and see the forest set that they built you just realize how much craftsmanship has gone into this thing you know there's like every last blade of grass and bit of moss and dangling creeper and everything's been designed and crafted and built by someone and hand placed there so we have to do exactly the same thing you know it's not enough for us to yeah. just go oh we'll just do a procedural houdini based forest generation thing that's the thing yeah you're not just extending a, a normal forest you know mm. you can you can tell you could tell where theirs ended and ours began mm. a lot of the time beyond just because it didn't have as much just randomness to it, you know, just mm. random colors, random plants that you've never seen. So and I think on, on a kind of normal, in inverted commas, <laughs> uh, TV show or film where you, uh, you want a forest, cool, we'll just, we'll go on this website and we'll download a whole load of oak trees and beech trees and rocks and grass. And, you know, we, we're already halfway there uh, as far as assets are concerned. Clearly on this, you know, there is no website that allows you to download unique Brian Frown designed mushrooms that yeah. exist in his brain. So... Again, everything, you know, we scanned a lot of stuff and photographed a huge amount of stuff, but it still, everything had to be hand-built by us. So the, the kind of emulation of um, the traditional techniques that the art department were doing were kind of emulated by us. Um, and that's, you know, as well as the fact that we were also doing the treetops with all the leaves blowing in the wind and the, the vines. and the So that was pretty epic. And I guess the, the desert probably uh, again was a pretty daunting prospect to have this uh, huge crystalline desert that you can't walk on because it's like an ocean and it's got these massive crystal shards and islands in it and there's a sandstorm and you know it's kind of uh, any any one of those things would be pretty huge <laughs> As the, the more you think about any of the environments it's like oh and then there was the, oh, but then there was yeah. that and then there was this yeah. So it almost makes building the capital city of Harar seem like a walk in the park. Yeah. And then, uh, oh, pink petal tree, yeah, we'll give you one of those. And the sanctuary <laughs> tree, uh, the crystal chamber. And yeah, not to mention the crystal castle, you know. I mean, the, yeah. the crystal castle was an entirely CG thing in an entirely CG environment. Um, but then we... Yeah that, 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 yeah, that was something I was actually surprised about, that that was a yeah, completely um, CGI model. But then, interestingly, it was based on the original model from the original movie because they actually had, uh, uh, you know, they had the, the model from the original film, which they were able to then uh, scan. They did a 3D print of it, so we had little uh, 3D mock-ups of it or real you know, miniatures of it. Uh, but then we also were given the, the 3D scan data, so we were able to just use that to... Uh, to rebuild our production model from, uh, and as I realised, describing that in twenty seconds makes it sound quite simple. Yeah, <laughs> we just scan and we just rebuilt it. It's fine. But that was just the level of detail. I mean, I guess the castle is such an iconic thing, and it really symbolises Brian Froud's designs, which is all about that sort of organic, detailed, asymmetrical. You know, all the things that CG hates. Mm-hmm. It's like no. <clears throat> We want it to be perfect and linear and right angles and preferably symmetrical so we can just mirror it and then we get two for the price of one. Yeah. But the Crystal Castle, there was none of that. It was it was one of the most intricate and detailed things that we uh, we had. So, yeah, that, that was uh, a pretty big challenge. So I think that's all the time that I have for, for you know, to, to chat to you guys. So I just want to say thank you so much uh, for what you all did, you know, contributing, you know, with the visual effects towards the Dark Crystal Age Resistance. Again, it's this incredible show, and just the work that you did—it really, really blended in with the with the performance of the puppeteers, and just just everything about it was just such a magical experience. So, again, I just want to say thank you so much for for being on the show and and chatting, Dark Crystal. Really appreciate that, Philip. I mean, yeah. it's been really great to see the feedback generally to the show. We've all loved yeah. it. And it's really great to see so many people uh, have loved it too. So, thank you for talking to us today. Yeah, thank you very much for having us.
Trial by Stone, the Dark Crystal podcast is a production of Three Point Edit. If you'd like to get in contact with the show, you can do so at darkcrystalpodcast at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter and Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. If you'd like to know more about the podcast, visit our website at www.darkcrystalpodcast.com. Thank you so much and stay tuned for the next episode of Trial by Stone.